Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast, or welcome for the first time. We are in a series on biblical contradictions because we love to dabble in heresy here at Paradox. At Paradox, sermons are designed to start discussions and not end them. So if you find yourself disagreeing with what I have to say, that's okay. Our hope and our goal is that you will think critically about what you believe as we all seek to learn how to love each other and love God more. Thank you so much to our donors who make this podcast possible by donating at paradoxgiving.com. And as I said earlier, we are in a series of biblical contradictions, and today's sermon is entitled, Paul's Contradiction. episode, we discussed a contradiction that exists between multiple authors. This week, however, I want to discuss a contradiction that exists by the same author, Paul the Apostle. Not only that, but I'm going to raise the stakes by saying this contradiction exists in the same book that Paul wrote. And to raise the stakes even further, this contradiction takes place in the same chapter. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 reads this. In Christ's renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. Can I get an amen? What a beautiful verse. Here Paul is arguing that in Christ... There is no distinction between socioeconomic, racial, or religious lines. It is a stunningly progressive proclamation of equality. This statement would get Meryl Streep to give a standing ovation in that gif that we've all seen where she points at the stage and says, Yo! (laughs) However, just a few verses later, Colossians 3, verse 22, reads quite differently. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Ugh, that verse is quite the come down, isn't it? I just picture Jesus doing a massive facepalm as he says, O.M. me. What are you doing, Paul? After talking about how slaves and free are equal, he then turns around and tells the slaves that they need to obey everything their masters command them to do because that's what God wants them to do. This is a problematic and frightening contradiction. The reason for this is because Paul wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. And it's a bit of a problem when the person writing the religious text is like, "Eh, slavery, not so bad. Did Paul really believe that slaves and free people were in fact equal? And would Paul be comfortable today telling us that slavery is in fact a sin? Or did Paul actually believe that God wanted slaves to obey everything their masters told them to do. Because that is a massive problem. My friends, 
I want to tell you today that I believe that Paul is vastly misunderstood by Christians today. And to help you see how Paul is misunderstood, I want to give you three tools that I have found to be immensely helpful whenever I read any of the books of the Bible written by Paul. All you have to do is remember these tools, and I think that it will change the way you read Paul and help you when you come across these tricky passages that we wish were not there in the first place. The first tool is this. Paul was a human being. The second tool is that Paul wrote letters. And the third tool is Paul is not the problem. So let's begin with Paul being a human being. Now we're introduced to Paul in the city of Jerusalem. We later find out he's from a place called Tarsus, but while he's in Jerusalem, he is well connected to the religious establishment of the day. In fact, he's able to meet with the high priest, the highest ranking religious official, without much effort, it appears, in the book of Acts. While he is in Jerusalem, he persecutes this new sect of Judaism known as Christianity. And by persecutes, we read in the book of Acts that Paul witnesses and is part of a mob that murders a man named Stephen who professed that Jesus was Lord. Now, Paul was apparently delighted by this murder of Stephen, so much so that he went to the high priest and asked for a detail of men to take to Damascus about 100 miles to the north and find Christians there and stamp out the movement in the city of Damascus. The high priest grants his wish, and with the high priest's blessing, Paul embarks on the road to Damascus. During that journey... Paul has a spiritual experience. He is blinded by a light and God calls out to him and Paul responds by asking, who are you? And God responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. A few days later, Paul abandoned his persecuting ways, was baptized in the name of Jesus and took off around the Mediterranean, planting churches, telling them, that Jesus Christ was in fact Lord of all. The hallmark of these churches was that Jews and Gentiles for the very first time began to worship side by side because Paul no longer viewed a distinguishing line between the two. Not only that, but women and men worshiped side by side as well as slaves and slave owners. They were all part of one body here in these churches around the Mediterranean in the first century. I tell you all of these things because it's important for us to remember Paul's story whenever we discuss the writings of Paul. Because Paul did not exist in a vacuum. Paul was human. And human beings come from places and they do their works in order to try and achieve larger goals and it is impossible to read Paul's writings or Paul's story in the book of Acts and not be convinced that whoever religion excluded, Paul sought to make sure they were included. Now that brings us to the letter of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
reads this way. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Now, Colossae is a very real place in Western Turkey. It's important to remember that this is a very real place because we have this idea that when we read the Bible, it was written for us. That whoever wrote these words ultimately was thinking about us, you know, thousands of years in the future, speaking different languages, and they wanted to make sure that we knew who God was. That's not the case in the book of Colossians. So much so that they titled the book, The Colossians. And the very first verse is, this is a letter to the people of Colossae. We need to remember that Colossians 1.1 does not read to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in the United States of America. That would be wild if Paul called that one 2,000 years ago. These are real people living in Colossae that Paul knew by name. So much so that the letter closes with a bunch of personal greetings including chapter 4, verse 15, when Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, I've met a lot of people who identify as biblical literists, and I have yet to meet one who has traveled to Colossae to give Nympha their greetings. Because, I'm sorry to say this, Nympha is dead. I know. Tragic, right? Didn't see that one coming. No, not Nympha. Oh, yeah. Nympha, Nympha died a while ago. But also a while ago, there were people who knew Nympha and who actually gave her greetings because Paul asked them to. Because Paul knew the people reading that letter knew who Nympha was. I tell you all of this because Paul wrote letters. None of the books that Paul wrote are actually books. They're all letters. And what we need to remember is that we are not the intended recipient for any of Paul's letters. Now, this is a bit of a problem because we really like to read things that are written to us. If you put the word you in the title of a book, chances are it will sell a whole lot of books. Thank you, Joel Osteen. But what I want to remind you is that when you read the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians was not written to you. It was written to the Colossians. And if Paul wrote a letter to us today, I think it's important for us to remember that this letter would be very different than any of the other letters he wrote 2,000 years ago. I'm not the first person to think this. A few decades ago, a man named Martin Luther King Jr. imagined what Paul might write to American Christians. On November 4, 1956, at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Alabama, he wrote a sermon called Paul's Letter to American Christians. And in there, he imagined what Paul would say to the church in America. This is what Dr. King came up with. I understand that you have an economic system in America known as capitalism. You are prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary and the size of the wheelbase on your automobile, rather than the quality of your service to humanity. The misuse of capitalism can also lead to tragic exploitation. This has so often happened in your nation. 
They tell me that one-tenth of one percent of the population controls more than 40% of the wealth. Oh, America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? If you are to be a truly Christian nation, you must solve this problem. So Martin Luther King believed just a few decades ago that if Paul lived among us today, he would write a letter called The Americans. And in that letter would tell us about the sins of capitalism and unflinchingly ask us to change our entire economic structure. Paul wrote letters. And if he wrote us a letter today, it would be different than the letter he wrote to Colossae yesterday. Now, when we remember that Paul wrote letters, we also have to remember that Paul thought his letters would only be read by their intended audiences and that they would always be read from beginning to end. So this idea that we can pull out a verse here or a verse there was something that Paul never thought about. Not only that, but if you take out a verse and post it on Twitter, Paul would respond by saying, what is the Twitter? This idea that we can take a verse out of the letter and share it and use it as a moral code is something that Paul never intended. In fact, Paul most likely never thought his letters would end up in the Bible. He was just writing a letter to his buddies in Colossae. Imagine if someone looked back at your entire catalog of text messages, GIFs, and emojis to your buddy Kyle, and all of a sudden they said, there's something inspired here, and they put it in the Bible, you would be thinking to yourself, what's in there? What did I say? That's not a good idea. I would write something very different if I knew I was writing something for the Bible. This is basically what happened to Paul. And while I personally really enjoy the letters of Paul, I have to tell you, I think he would have written something very different if he wrote a letter to us or if he knew he was writing something that would be included in a Bible. So when we read these two verses in isolation, which, you know, admittedly contradict each other, right? The idea that we're all equal in Christ's eyes and that slaves should be, obey their masters. It's not really honoring the text by pulling those verses and looking at them individually. I think it's worthwhile looking at both of these verses, but only in the greater context of the letter. Because Paul just assumed that anyone who read this letter would read it from the beginning. So let's do that, shall we? Keeping in mind that Paul is a human being and that Paul wrote this for people who are not us, let's read through the book of Colossians or paraphrase the book of Colossians and see why Paul would write these two contradictory ideas. So Colossians begins with that greeting to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Then Paul begins by telling the people of Colossae just how great they are and how much he's been inspired by their work and how he appreciates them and who Christ has called them to be. This is, of course, expected because these are Paul's friends. Then in verse 15 of chapter 1, there is a distinct change as Paul begins to launch into why he is writing his letter. 
Paul, in verses 15 to 23, begins to lay some groundwork for the theology that will inform the rest of the letter. He tells the people of Colossae that Christ is all. Everything they experienced is an interaction with the divine. From the stars in the sky, to the animals they admire, to the relationships they share with each other, to the mountains they see in the distance. In fact, he writes, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. What Paul is doing here is he is establishing that there is nothing that one can do that is apart from God. Instead, everything and every experience and every conversation, every interaction is very much saturated in the divine. There is no distinction between secular activities and sacred activities. All activities are spiritual. He then goes on to talk about how the Colossian church has responded to this in verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember who we are in Christ. It is Christ whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul writes these words because the main idea behind his letter is that he is going to define what spiritual maturity is. And Paul believes this spiritual maturity can be grounded in the message of Christ. A few verses later, he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured and understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so after establishing the universal theology and then speaking specifically to the Colossians about spiritual maturity, Paul unveils his thesis statement in chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 7. He writes, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As I said earlier, this is the thesis statement of the letter to the Colossians. And Paul's main argument is that spiritual maturity is gratitude. The ability to look at the world with all of its suffering and evil and heartache and death, but to also see the love, hope, light, and beauty, and to respond to all of it with the words, thank you. Now it's here that someone else who has read Colossians may object to this idea and say, hey, Craig, I read Colossians from beginning to end, and I think that Paul's thesis is something else. Now I have to tell you, this has never happened in my ministerial career. No one has ever told me, well, I've read this letter from beginning to end of Paul's, and I think the thesis is different. I point this out because these are the conversations we should be having, right? We should be discussing the entire letters and the central arguments more than the ancillary verses that catch our attention. Remember, the thesis is what the whole letter is built around. So if I could only give you one or two verses from this letter, it should be Paul's thesis statement, which is in chapter 2. 
This is important to remember when we get to the contradictory statements in chapter 3. The reason for this is because all of this is said in light of Paul's thesis statement. So the question we're going to ask later is, how do these verses support or detract from Paul's central idea? Spiritual maturity is gratitude. So let's keep that in mind as we continue to go through the letter. Now in Colossians 2, 8 to 23, Paul talks about religion. And boy, oh boy, does Paul have something to say about religion. He writes the Colossians, God made you alive together with Christ when God forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. God set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, Paul writes, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Has anyone ever condemned you for drinking the wrong thing? Paul would say, who cares? Let's move beyond that. He goes on to write, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. My friends, have you ever thought of religion as rules for what you can and cannot do? Paul would say to you, well, stop doing that. Rules presented as religion is a human invention, according to Paul. This idea that spiritual maturity is not drinking the wrong thing is a human concoction. There's something more to following Jesus. The idea that you can eat holier food is a waste of time. The idea that if you touch the wrong thing, you are somehow further from Christ. Ugh, Paul says, give me a break. I'm tired of little gods. So then Paul goes on to say, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. Oh, this is poetry, my friends. Paul is telling us that the rules that we keep for religion are all for our own ego to tell ourselves that we're somehow worthy in God's eyes. If we follow those rules, that's the extent of them. And it's worthless. Then as chapter three begins, Paul spends four verses talking to the people of Colossae saying, turn your eyes toward heavenly things. And before he gets into what those heavenly things are, he invites the people of Colossae to attend a funeral. He tells them to let things die that need to die. He goes on to write, but now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And after Paul says, put to death, anger, malice, greed, hatred, just let it die. He then brings out that verse that we started this podcast with. 
Verse 11 of chapter 3, in that renewal where you let go of anger, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And after making that profound point of equality and the idea that anything that separates you from the person next to you needs to be put to death. Paul then talks about freedom from verses 12 to 17. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul wants the people of Colossae to let go of anger, hatred, and malice, and replace it with kindness, humility, and patience. He goes on to write, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you may also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful, which is a callback to Paul's thesis statement. He then goes on to write, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So a quick recap of where we've been in this letter so far. The letter opens with greetings and salutations to Paul's friends in Colossae. Then Paul talks about the universal Christ and how everything we do and encounter is God, so there is no barrier between the sacred and the secular. He then unveils his thesis statement, which is spiritual maturity is gratitude. And then he talks about religion and how religion tries to tell you that spiritual maturity is rules. Paul says that's all a human invention, and he's imploring people to let go of that idea. To attend a funeral for anger, hatred, malice, and judgmentalism that comes with following rules. And instead, replace it with kindness and patience and love and forgiveness so that you may give thanks to God for making you less angry. So what Paul is trying to do here in his thesis is he's trying to tell everyone that you can live a life of gratitude rather than a life of anger. In other words, he wants people to know that conversion with Jesus Christ is possible. Now, when we use the word conversion, that is a loaded term in Christianity. And this is a word that is vastly misunderstood by Christians today. To demonstrate this misunderstanding, let's go back to Paul's story when he was on a road to Damascus. Now remember, Paul was going to Damascus to kill Christians. He hated Christians. And then all of a sudden, he encountered God on the way to Damascus, and his life completely changed. Now the way that Christians understand conversion today is that they would assume that this conversion for Paul would mean that he traded one identity for another. In other words, Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's ready to kill Christians. God shows up and says, actually, I'm Jesus. 
And after the light disappears, Paul looks around at his friends and says, All right, boys, I've seen the light. The Christians are right and the Jews are wrong. Let's turn back to Jerusalem and persecute the Jews. <sighs> this is what most Christians think when we hear the word conversion. And this, my friends, is known as a tribal conversion. When you switch from one tribe to another. Imagine if you had a friend that was a rabid Seahawks fan. And he just loved the Seahawks. And then all of a sudden he called you one day and he said, my life's completely changed. I, I've seen the light. I'm a Broncos fan now. And you say, that's great. What's different? And your friend tells you, well, I, I root for the Broncos now. And you realize everything is the exact same. The only difference is the laundry he's wearing. That is a tribal conversion. And Paul has zero interest in tribal conversions. His letter is about something much deeper because it's tied to his human story. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus ready to kill Christians. And then all of a sudden there was a light. Other people couldn't hear the voice of God, but God said to Paul, hey, I am one with the people that you are persecuting. This so deeply impacted Paul that he let go of his hatred and replaced it with love. And when people asked him, what's different about your life since you met Jesus? He said, well, I used to try and kill the people who are not part of my religion. But now I try to create churches where people who are part of my religion and people who are not part of my religion can worship together as we are all God's children. This, my friends, is a spiritual conversion. And Paul wants the people of Colossae to know that spiritual conversion with Jesus Christ is possible. The idea that you can respond to this world that contains both beauty and ugliness with gratitude is entirely possible because he experienced it firsthand. And for him, spiritual maturity is not the ability to keep rules, but instead to respond to the world with gratitude. Now, if Paul was writing this letter as a timeless religious text, then I personally believe he would stop the letter here. He would take out the greetings to the Colossians and the names that he throws out in the beginning and talking about their journey. But other than that, the main ideas might stay intact because this is a timeless idea that we can benefit from. So we have to keep that in mind as we go forward because he's about to get into specifics for the Colossian church over the next couple of verses. Now, as we get into the specifics, I just want to ask a question to remind us where we're at. What is Paul discussing at this point in the letter? He's discussing conversion. And that is essential because if you don't understand that, then you'll view the very next verse as a sharp left turn out of nowhere. Because in verse 18 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Ugh. It's hard for me to even say out loud during this podcast. And you may be listening to this podcast thinking to yourself, this is why I left church behind is because of verses like this and the idea that they're in the Bible. I want you to know that I do not blame you for leaving. At the same time, I want to be honest with you that when we read the entire letter, we have to read the parts that make us uncomfortable. Because the very next verse reveals what Paul is trying to do, even if he's not doing it well. In verse 19, he writes, And husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Now, when you look at this juxtaposition of social order, you have to look at what's expected from people. Were wives in Paul's day expected to be subject to their husbands? The answer is yes. This was a normal social code in Hellenistic society during Paul's day and age. Were husbands, however, expected to love their wives? The answer is no. Husbands didn't have to love their wives. Husbands didn't have to do anything other than own their wives. And when we ask ourselves the question, what is Paul discussing at this point in the letter? The answer is conversion or change, which raises the question. When we look at these two verses together, who is Paul asking to convert here? It's not the women. It's the men. Paul looks at what we would describe as sexism, which is the subordination of women. And he tells women to keep doing what they're doing. And he turns to the men and says, hey, we got to do better. Love your wives. I don't care if you purchase them. I don't care if your marriage was prearranged. You need to learn how to love them. By our standards today, this seems like a step backwards ethically, doesn't it? But by the standards of Paul's day, I can see how this was a step forwards. And I'm not asking you to like what Paul's writing here. I'm not saying that what Paul is writing is right. But what I'm hoping is that you can see what Paul is trying to do and at the very least just say, well, I disagree with the way that Paul is attempting to bring gender equality. To which I would say that's a good discussion to have. I'm not sure this is the best way either. <laughs> in the very next verses, Paul writes, children, obey your parents and everything for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. What is Paul discussing at this point in the letter? Conversion. And who is Paul asking to convert here? Fathers. He's looking at a father's relationship with a child and he's saying, Dads, we can do better. And then in the very next verse, Colossians 3.22, it's that verse that we read at the beginning, the contradictory verse where Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And a few verses later, Paul then turns to the masters of the slaves and says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. What is Paul discussing at this point in the letter? Conversion. And who is Paul asking to convert here? 
the masters of the slaves, not the slaves. Now, you may hear this and say, I disagree with the way that Paul is attempting to disrupt the sinful hierarchy of slavery, to which I would say, fair point. There is something powerful if Paul writes to the slaves, revolt, rise up, fight for your independence. But Paul, in this letter, is telling the people of Colossae that they need to change who they are as slave masters to pursue justice. And while we wish it was a bigger step, we have to remember that Paul is not writing this letter to the emperor of Rome. If Paul wrote this letter to the emperor, I think it would say something different than to the church in Colossae. Was it the best solution? I don't think so. Do I understand what Paul was trying to do? I do. I do. He's calling out the slave owners. And he's saying that they're the ones that need a change. And Paul is more interested in incremental change than radical change. And I'm fine with anyone criticizing him for that. But I found that very few people have that kind of discussion in response to the text. From there, Paul then wraps up his letter by recalling his thesis. He says in chapter four, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. He then talks about instructions and what people need to do in order to get this letter out. And the letter of Colossians comes to a close. So my hope is that when you read the letters of Paul, you will come back to the idea that Paul was a human being who existed in a story, in a context. And that you will also remember that Paul wrote letters. He didn't intend to write the Bible. And then there is the third tool. That Paul is not the problem. And this tool was life-changing for me. If we return to Colossians 3, 18 and 19, where Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. While I've spent the last 30 minutes trying to explain why Paul would write such a thing, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why Paul wrote such a thing. What matters is that there is a lot of pain in that verse, isn't there? There are centuries and even millenniums of men leading the church, looking at these two verses and telling people, hey, Paul wanted you to know that women are inferior. So because of this, there were husbands who got drunk and abused their wives. There were women who were not allowed to be ordained who felt called to ministry. There were women who are paid less for doing the same work as men. And while I personally believe that Paul was trying to argue for gender equality in a first century kind of way, it doesn't really matter. Because the overwhelming majority of church history is church leaders taking this verse and using it as a weapon to oppress women. And this all takes place in the larger letter of Colossians, 
which may I remind you is asking people to let go of hatred, anger, and inequality and strive toward gratitude. Church history tells us that given the choice between gender equality and sexism, the church chose sexism and the church continues to choose sexism to this day. My friends, Paul is not the problem. The church is the problem. The church is the group of people who looked at this verse and said, oh, we can use this to make women inferior. This doesn't end with Paul's writings about women. In all of the New Testament, there are only three verses that discuss same-sex sexual activity. All three are attributed to Paul. Now, Paul does not write about sexual orientation. Paul does not write about gender identity. Paul does not write about same-sex marriage. But the church has interpreted these three verses as weapons against the queer community. And look, we can do word studies and we can talk about the Greek and we can talk about the Hellenistic culture and whether Paul condemned it or not. It doesn't matter. Because when you look at church history, the church basically said, we hate queer people. What verses can we use to justify that hatred? Given the choice between love and queer phobia, the church chose queer phobia and continues to choose queer phobia to this day. This all comes from a man, Paul, who gave his life, including people in churches that the church refused to include. Paul is not the problem. The church is the problem. Which brings us to Colossians 3.22. In there, we read those words that are hard to read out loud today. Slaves, obey your masters. And while there is also the verse that requires masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly, the white church largely ignored that verse. But the problem ran much deeper than ignorance. In 1804, the people who were enslaved in Haiti led a violent insurrection over their oppressors. They triumphed and declared the nation of Haiti to be free. They are the first nation in the world to abolish slavery. This insurrection made white American slave owners very nervous. So nervous, in fact, that three years later in 1807, they published the first ever slave Bible. This was a Bible they started circulating around slaves in case any of them learned to read. And this was a heavily edited version of the scriptures. In standard Protestant Bibles today, there are 1,189 chapters. And in the slave Bible that was published in 1807, there were only 232 chapters. They removed entire books from the Bible. They took out the story of the Exodus where Moses led the slaves out of captivity. And the entire book of Colossians is removed from this Bible. But what stayed? Selections from the book of Ephesians, including chapter 6, verse 5, which reads, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ. Paul is not the problem. The church is the problem. 
And given the choice between equality and racism, the white church chose racism. And the white church continues to choose racism to this day. I tell you these things because it's important for us to acknowledge our church's history. And when we say we have baggage with Paul, I have found that we typically have more baggage with the way the church has held the writings of Paul than with Paul himself. We need to get back to remembering that these writings are letters. And yes, they are bound in a Bible, but Paul never envisioned them sitting in a Bible one day. So may we strive to know the humanity of Paul. May we have the courage to read Paul's letters from beginning to end with the understanding that we are not his intended audience. And may we acknowledge the pain the church has caused by wielding the words of Paul as a weapon. And may we make tangible and necessary amends. And may we experience the spiritual transformation of Jesus Christ and live a life overflowing with gratitude. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. <laughs>